Ugh, I had a thought, but I completely forget it. Well, it's gone. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we? I'm ready. What do you know about school police officers? I know absolutely nothing. Did you have any in your school since it was a private school? No, I didn't. I mean, definitely something you and I have talked about in the context of town and city police officers is that generally the better resource a community is, the lesser the police presence is. Yeah. So yeah, to expose my privilege, I did go to a very, very well-funded private school. And I guess maybe intuitively, there was no school police presence. Mm -hmm. My school also didn't have police officers, but I also went to school in Spain. And so I don't know if public schools in Spain have police officers, but we're going to talk about police in schools in the United States. Okay. Maybe less talked about. Wow. Yeah, definitely less talked about. I mean, the first thing that came to mind, I have, I, I literally thought we were talking about like hall monitors. I was like, school police officers. <laughs> like what? Well, you know, that'll become relevant. Oh, okay. So they're called school resource officers or SROs. I love saying resource as if we're resourcing those communities, yeah. but whatever, like, continue. I don't want this resource. <laughs> this is the wrong resource. Yeah. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> um, and they're law enforcement officers working in school settings. They have the power to arrest. Most carry restraints. And 91% of them are armed. Okay, so I just, I have a quick question. Mm-hmm. Schools mm-hmm. mostly have kids. Mm-hmm. So they're policing juveniles? Like, I, I, I can't yes. imagine they're policing the staff. Like, they're policing the kids. The kids. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my god. It's it's school safety, Audra. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, and they're armed. Yeah, yeah. okay. Mm-hmm. I'm like getting more desensitized the longer I live in the United States, which is frightening to me. Mm-hmm. But when I first moved here, any time that I saw a gun, living in New York, I've only seen them on police officers. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you're in the subway and then you get out of the subway and there are like three police officers with like a huge bulletproof vest on and like huge like machine gun looking things. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, what are you waiting for here? Like, is there a bomb somewhere? Like, I, should I go home? Like, you're scaring the shit out of me. Like, what? <laughs> What is this war zone? And I'm like, why are you here looking like that? Like, literally. It's so freaky. So let alone imagining a presence like that when you're like going to math class. I know. I was going to ask, is the police force in Spain armed with different equipment than firearms? Or because I know there are some police forces that have maybe just like the police baton Mm -hmm. and not every officer, only officers of certain ranks will have a firearm or things like that. The police force is armed, has access mm-hmm. to weapons. I don't know if every officer that's on the street mm-hmm. is carrying a gun. Okay. They might just be carrying tasers and a baton or something. I wonder also, like, the civilian population that is armed mm-hmm. <laughs> in Spain is different. So mm-hmm. I, I feel like the, the majority of guns that are owned in Spain, I'm pretty sure, are all, like, for hunting. And they're, like, rifles and like take a second to yeah to reload and and they would be very obvious if you're just like walking down la gran via right they don't they don't fit in like your belt loop (laughs) yeah that'd be quite the belt loop right (laughs) so the history of sros they first appeared in the late 1950s do you want to guess as a response to what okay 50s is before i feel like the civil rights movement is in full swing but it's right after world war ii yeah, so it's a response to desegregation of schools. Stop. Yeah, which is not surprising in the history of the United States. It being like, oh, schools are being integrated. I think we need to bring the police in here. I, 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 <laughs> okay. Okay, great. Great. I mean, I feel like if anything, the danger is coming from the fucking white parents standing outside shouting slurs at the little kids. Like, that's who needs to be restrained via Police force. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, excuse me, ma'am, this is a school. Yeah, and excuse me, ma'am, she's five. Like, yeah. relax. <laughs> <laughs> like, clearly we need a gun involved here. So they first appeared in the late 1950s, but became more widespread in the 1990s. And this expansion of police presence in schools came from the establishment of the Community-Oriented Policing Services, or COPS for short. <laughs> Wait, is that where the word COP comes from? <laughs> No, I actually looked it up 
because oh. I was like, oh, I feel like Audra's going to ask this question. Yeah. No, cop was already slang okay. for police. And there's also kind of mixed sources. Some say it's because police officers would wear copper badges. And Ooh. so like in the in the UK, they would call them coppers. And in the US, they would call them cops. Other people were saying that it's because the police would like cop your stuff, like seize your property. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think it was just a slang word. And I don't know if this was aren't we cute our little cops program right which is so common in in u.s policy like creating policy written with a fun acronym right (laughs) like they find the acronym first and then they try to find words that make sense chuggy (laughs) so that program started came in the 1994 crime bill following concerns of rising rates of juvenile crime the operative word being concern because the data does not demonstrate that violence and drug use were actually increasing. I know. I, I was like, wasn't crime dropping back then? Like, Yeah. You know, most of criminal justice policy is not actually responding to any rise in crime. No, it's responding to fears. Mm-hmm. Like, I know that with the satanic panic, for example, now that women were gaining slowly more access to the workplace and were at home less often and their kids were more likely to be in daycare programs, that's when we started turning such a spotlight on who are those daycare providers? And then obviously mm. we vilified like the queer community, mm-hmm. but it's generally just like, there's something else. Like, it's not like, oh, suddenly gay people are pedophiles in daycare. It's like, no, something else aside, like there are bigger gears yeah. turning and there's no data to suggest that our daycare providers are doing these weird things and satanic rituals. <laughs> but societally, we have a concern that's coming from somewhere else. And I think it, it sounds like maybe it's somewhere like, okay, there's concern from other societal gears grinding, mm-hmm. but it's not because there's actually proven rising crime rates exactly like the the assumption that a satanic ritual is going on can't in a daycare center is such a jump from reality like why are we so unwilling to listen to documented facts or surveys or i know that like not every statistic is like completely encapsulating everything and that models are models for a reason and they have to cut out certain things but at least it's drawing from something and not just i'm getting vibes I'm getting vibes. Right. That satanic shit is going down. (laughs) Right. Exactly. It's like, it's so easy to convince people to be scared of something they were already scared of. Like they don't Mm -hmm. need a reason. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's like, okay, I could, I could give you all the data in the world to try to convince you that global warming and climate change is happening. Mm -hmm. And if you don't want to believe it, like we might not get there, but you don't need a shred of data to think that your daycare provider is doing a satanic ritual (laughs) because you're already scared of that person. Exactly. (laughs) And there's this article published by Learning for Justice where Maya Lindbergh explains that essentially the perceived threat of juvenile crime can be traced to the war on drugs, which expanded to public schools in the form of, quote, punitive disciplinary consequences, metal detectors and other security measures and paving the way for these SRO programs to really infiltrate and expand. Yeah, for sure. And these programs are extremely well-funded. For example, in 2021, $313 million of the NYPD's $5 billion budget were allocated to school safety. I'm sorry. $313 million for New York alone. For just New York City. Like, the, what we could do with that money. Because I was about to say, I know that abstinence-only programs... In 2021, I believe it was, got something about like something around $100 million federally. And I also think that's like Mm -hmm. a complete and utter misuse of our public funding. Mm -hmm. And this $300 million for New York alone? Just New York City. Like, what? What (laughs) in the world? It's insane. And so basically how these programs work, it's similar to how police actually end up reporting to situations that are not preventing or solving crime, like how they're not trained to de-escalate mental health crises and we should have someone else to call for things like a welfare check. Right. SROs are just not the appropriate resource for achieving school safety. And of course, school safety needs to be a priority in a country like the United States that has so many school shootings. I mean, school safety should be a priority everywhere, but absolutely, the stakes are higher and the, the fear and the trauma collectively that people have around schools because of these horrible tragedies that happen it's a topic that we want addressed but what often ends up happening is that much of what school resource officers are doing on the daily is enforcing school rules like carrying your school id card 
not following the uniform, using their cell phones, all of which are behaviors that should be monitored by teachers. Like, I really don't think this warrants police intervention. Right. And why are we spending millions to have this police presence where they just say, stop using your phones, kids. Like, anyone (laughs) can say that. Like, get out of the hallway. Exactly. Like, what a waste of this role. Like, why, why are you doing this? And also, you said that school resource officers were, like, first placed in schools in the 50s, but they gained popularity in the 90s. All of that predates the upward trend in the frequency of mass shootings at schools. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, we're going to get to that. It's not like this is in response to school shootings. Like, maybe now there could be parents who under-informed on the history of these officers might say, but I want those police officers there because there are so many school shootings. Fine. That argument I could take in good faith. But when we look at the history, it's clear that's not why they were actually fucking put there in the first place. Mm -hmm. Oh, oh, we will will (sighs) speak about their success rates. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) So even though they do enforce random school rules, which is dumb. And random. (laughs) Yeah. Like, hello. (laughs) Um. The bigger concern is that they do use their police power to arrest students. And for example, in the in the article that I mentioned earlier, Lindbergh states that in the 2011 to 2012 school year, quote, 26,000 students were referred to law enforcement and 92,000 were subjected to school-based arrests. And these arrests are five times higher at schools with SROs than at those without. So it's happening at schools that already have the police. And it's not like other schools are calling police to the school to deal with a matter. It's like, oh, they're already here. We'll arrest the kid for whatever they're doing. Attention when you can just arrest them. (laughs) (laughs) Let's let's cut to the chase. Yeah. (laughs) And what's even more upsetting is, according to the ACLU, across the United States, there are, quote, 1.7 million students attending schools with police, but no counselors. 3 million with police, but no school nurses, 6 million with police, but no psychologists, and 10 million with police, but no social workers. So the prioritization of police in schools is literally diverting resources from more nuanced and specialized and necessary roles, like a police officer, but no nurse. What? Okay. (laughs) As someone whose little sister was diagnosed with a life-threatening chronic illness, type 1 diabetes, if you know, you know. At the age of seven, she was diagnosed with this. She lived in the nurse's office. Mm -hmm. That poor girl could not catch a break. She's a brittle diabetic. She was very sometimes sensitive to insulin, sometimes not at all. She'd be completely out of range blood sugar wise, which could Mm -hmm. threaten long term the health of her kidneys. But short term, she could pass out and go into a coma, like go into diabetic ketoacidosis. Like Mm -hmm. there are really, really acute concerns for a kid at that age, especially when they're just trying to be a kid. Yeah. Their brains don't understand. Like, no, I need to sit here. I need to correct. I need to wait 10 minutes. Check again. Like, that's a kind of forethought and planning that you're really cognitively, like, not quite yet ready for. And she needed, yeah. for her life, a nurse. Mm-hmm. And I think something that happens a lot in, like, the disability conversations we have societally is that we only think about have pictures of brochures with white kids. Mm. We rarely talk about black autistic kids or like Mm. black kids with type one diabetes. And it just like, I don't know. I I think that sometimes people can act as if representation or those pictures and those brochures and who those organizations are centering and foregrounding is almost like an unconnected piece of the puzzle or it's okay. Yeah. It'd be nice to have more representation, but it's not the, of the utmost importance. And to me, it's like, no, this is all part of the same spectrum. It's all connected. If we're not Mm -hmm. thinking about young black kids with disabilities and chronic illnesses, then I think we're all going to not realize, like I didn't realize until you just told me, that those kids are more likely to have fucking police officers at their schools than nurses. Yeah. And I feel like if we think about how dire a situation can be between the safety of someone based on their health versus, let's say there's a kid at, at a school and... A teacher finds out that they have weed on them or something Mm -hmm. in a state where it's legal to have weed. I mean, if you're under 18, I think it's illegal anyway, but whatever. Mm -hmm. Even if you decided that the intervention there was to call a police officer, which I don't think is the intervention, (laughs) between calling the police officer and that person arriving, like no one's dying. No one's dying. But like if you don't have a nurse Mm -hmm. and someone ate a peanut, the distance (sighs) between the ambulance arriving, like that could be the difference between someone living or dying. Right. Why are we not prioritize? Why are there 3 million kids that don't have a nurse but have a police officer? It makes absolutely no sense. Wow. 
That's really heartbreaking. Yeah. So I'm sure, as you can imagine, there are some negative effects of these uh, presences. (laughs) You don't say. (laughs) So advocates have been demonstrating that the presence of SROs contribute to the school-to-prison pipeline, which, for those who don't know, is defined by the NYCLU as, quote, education and public safety policies that push students into the criminal legal system Mm -hmm. through zero-tolerance disciplinary policies involving the police in minor misbehavior so for example getting police involved in truancy like skipping school Mm -hmm. if you're in a neighborhood that has more police presence and is because of that most likely a low-income predominantly of color neighborhood if you're found on the street by a police officer or you're caught like trying to leave school by the sro you're already like your first point of contact is the police because you skipped school while like in another neighborhood that you don't have a police at your school, you don't have police on the streets. If your teacher finds out that you skip class, they're probably going to call your parents. Mm-hmm. They're not going to call the cops. No. You know, unless there's strong reason to believe that you've been kidnapped or something. But right, of course, it's like, oh, this is this is an opportunity for growth for this kid to talk about responsibility, not you're a criminal and <laughs> I'm going to arrest you because you like snuck out with your friends during recess to like smoke a cigarette. Like, right. Or like maybe your school is well-funded enough that you are fully staffed and mm-hmm. student-to-teacher ratios are like 10 to 1. And maybe your teachers notice that you've been a little weepy or de-energized or sad lately. And now that you've skipped class, they're going to wonder, hey, are you okay? Like, why did you skip class? Mm-hmm. Not, let's fucking arrest this kid. Yeah. Like, you're starting from a benefit-of-the-doubt perspective or just just a more reasonable perspective of like, you're a kid (laughs) and a more informed perspective yeah right right exactly and like i think that if you told someone like a hundred years ago that police forces would be handling school absences i genuinely think those like a hundred year ago citizens of the u.s would go straight into a coma they'd be like what 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 do you mean like literally what do you mean yeah and it frustrates me too because a lot of times when you hear white privileged adults talking about their crazy youth and like oh yeah we jumped a fence and broke into this construction site or oh i got arrested because of whatever or i was always like sneaking out of the house or skipping class or whatever it's like oh i was such a rebel like i'm such a baddie and it's like a funny dinner party story but if you talk to those same people about if it's a group of black students that left school and like broke in somewhere it's like thugs are out like this is such a public safety issue like it's not attributed to kids being kids it's like you must have a malicious criminal intent i know literally i was gonna say they forgive it in themselves as a funny quirk and in black kids they see it as nefarious intent and that's another thing that happens a lot is like we really like steal black children's childhoods from them and we always treat them as if they're older than they are mm-hmm. or as if they i don't know as if like they're capable of being fucking nefarious at age 12 like mm-hmm. they're 12 it must be a pathological issue oh my god literally or like the language around crack babies there's a cognitive dissonance if you if you think about like a 5 year old being a criminal but then if the entire world is talking about oh these babies born to mothers addicted to crack are like subhuman they're another breed they're demonic Mm. then you can create space to like think they need to be policed if that makes sense like Mm -hmm. i think that the language goes hand in hand with our treatment of them that was no but it's true how we frame things and who we blame for things and just having a very like antagonistic rhetoric around certain people for the same behavior that other people are doing and it's not thought of that way is is how we construct so many of our false imaginary Mm -hmm. narratives that we have about certain groups right so all of these consequences are as we were saying disproportionately endured by students of color students with disabilities and lgbtq plus youth education week found that quote in 43 states and the district of columbia Black students were arrested at school at disproportionately higher levels and 10 states found that the share of arrested black students was 20 percentage points higher than these students' share of enrollment. So that's what I mean by disproportionate. Like they occupy a higher percentage of the arrested student population than they do of just the student population. That's horrific. Yeah. (laughs) And when you say disabilities, does that include neurodivergence, like kids with ADHD and Tourette syndrome and stuff like that? I think it does. I'm not sure exactly which disabilities are most targeted. 
I would assume that neurodivergence, if like the behavior or like words or actions is impacted by the neurodivergence, like maybe it could be seen as threatening by a police officer and being like, this kid is violent because they're running around because they have ADHD and like throwing stuff around or something like that. You know, like I can see how a police officer that isn't trained to understand different disabilities or mental struggles or anything like that Mm -hmm. could interpret certain behavior I mean, we see it even in educators who are supposed to be, you know, well-versed in all this stuff, Mm -hmm. how, oh, you need to go to remedial math because you can't focus. And it's like, well, maybe if we just had a different approach for different kids, like not every kid is going to learn exactly the same Mm -hmm. and you're just are ostracizing kids that don't. Yeah, because I was just thinking like if you're, let's say, I mean, I know autism spectrum disorder takes many different forms. And recently I've heard a lot of autistic creators talking about it more as like, almost a heat map, like a circular heat map, where if you imagine around the circumference of the circle are all different types of needs you might have. Yeah. So maybe you have a lot more sensory needs or maybe you're nonverbal, but you're totally fine with different like textures and sounds and things like that. And like light, Mm -hmm. like everyone has like sort of a different map of their needs that need to be met. But some people do struggle a lot if they have autism spectrum disorder with recognizing certain facial expressions with maintaining eye contact. And I just, and that, that could make it really difficult to interact with a police officer. That's what I'm thinking. Like, what if they were like, look me in the eye, son. And you're like, ah, no. Like sometimes <laughs> that's just like, that's just not someone being disrespectful. It's yeah. them just working the way they work. And you have to, if you're going to be not just in a school with kids, but in a community of people and human beings, you just need to be curious enough and compassionate enough to get that or to get on board with that. Yeah. And even if they are just being disrespectful, the amount of times that a parent will say to a kid, look at me. And the kid's like, no. Are you going to call the cops? Like, I mean, right. <laughs> and again, like, I really think that we're so much more likely to think about like white little boys having ADHD, Tourette's or autism. Mm-hmm. But I really think the conversation is behind. Yes, when it comes to girls, but also when it comes to black kids and black girls, so if there is like, I don't know, like a young black student who, who is neurodivergent in some way, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the first assumption a police officer is going to make. They're going to make the, yeah. they're being nefarious, they're being rude, they're being nasty assumption. Exactly. Because like any intersection of another minority race or gender or sexuality is not studied in the same way that mm-hmm. white little boys are studied. And so if all of our data is coming from that and being like, well, they the highest population or, or whatever of kids diagnosed with autism, that's just reflective of like who we've researched and like where the data is coming from and mm-hmm. who has access to being diagnosed with certain things. And I liked what you're saying about the heat map, because I feel like sometimes I struggle with the word spectrum with anything that we use mm-hmm. it for, because it encourages binaries of like, you're this far away from quote unquote normal mm-hmm. rather than seeing things as circular heat maps I I like that imagery better I feel like when people talk about a sexuality spectrum like what are the two points (laughs) (laughs) exactly I will tag in the show notes the creator on TikTok who first introduced this imagery of that heat map of needs Mm -hmm. her name is or her her name is Nicole but her at is sound of the forest but we'll put her in the show notes because that's where I first heard about this sort of like different understanding or different like mental mapping of autism itself. Yes. And so students with disabilities are arrested or referred to law enforcement at nearly three times the rate as non-disabled students. So the data is confirming our suspicions here of like how a disabled student might interact with police over a different abled person and police presence also contributes to feelings of alienation, distrust of authority, and lower educational outcomes. Because obviously, if you go to school and you're treated like you're under constant suspicion of a crime, like you're not going to feel safe or at ease around these cops. And how are you going to be focused on social studies when you're trying not to get arrested? Literally. And so it's like, at best, demoralizing and at worst, physically dangerous. Also, I think that when you talk about distrust of authority... It's not just this like amorphous abstract thing. It's not a paranoia, you know, like Mm -hmm. I think that I obviously hope and wish for black people to be studied and cared for in the medical field and in every industry in the way that white people historically have been Mm -hmm. so that they can get 
the care that they need and deserve in the same way that white populations in the U.S. are. Mm -hmm. So I'm not trying to discourage anyone from going to see their doctors or encouraging anyone to, I don't know, distrust authority more than they need to. That's not what Mm -hmm. I'm trying to do. But I do remember reading Michelle Obama's book, Becoming, Mm -hmm. and she talked about how her dad, who had multiple sclerosis, did not ever go see a doctor for it and never Mm -hmm. got treatment. Mm -hmm. And he was in so much pain. He somehow never missed a day of work, but he was in so much pain that he ended up dying, I think, much before his time. I think he was in his mid to late 50s. And it was obviously really devastating, but... I think Michelle Obama could understand why her dad had resisted going to doctors because when things like the Tuskegee syphilis study are happening and Mm -hmm. all of these black men are not informed that they have syphilis and are just treated like human fucking guinea pigs, then yeah, yeah, it's easy to feel like I'm not going there. Yeah. Like, what do you like? Why would you trust authority figures when like the doctors and the police who are supposed to be keeping us safe are making you miserable or or just are in some cases actively harming you? Yes, exactly. I think any social issue that we see, I feel like in one area of life, we're going to see it across the board. Right. And so if we see racism at the hands of the police, we're going to see it in hospitals. We're going to see it in schools. We're going to see it in the workforce. We're going to see it in the army. We're going to see it everywhere because we're all people kind of occupying the same social fabric. And so those things are everywhere Mm -hmm. and you can't really solve for it in one area and then it'd be like totally fine elsewhere. (laughs) You're like, shockingly, medicine is just not racist, even though everything else is. Like, no, that's not how that works. Yeah. So let's talk some alternatives. Yes, please. Oh, (laughs) baby. Well, we have the defund the police movement, which, while certainly active prior to 2020, garnered a lot stronger support, or at least like worldwide mainstream attention following the murder of Mm -hmm. George Floyd. And the movement calls for a reallocation of funding away from the police department to other government agencies, holistic mental health services, and community-based forms of safety, mainly due to the violence that many minorities have had to experience at the hand of the police. Mm -hmm. And the data shows us that 9 out of 10 calls to the police are for nonviolent incidents, which often officers escalate because their training is focused on use of force and practicing worst-case scenarios. So if you are called for something that's not violent, but all your training is to address violence, it's much easier for any reaction to be escalated far worse than it needed to be. So if the majority of police contact with civilians doesn't call for these specific skill sets, shouldn't we have more appropriate experts to report incidents to or like a little bit more diversity of it's not just you call 911 and the only person that can show up is a police officer. Right. Like George Floyd's death being a perfect example. Mm -hmm. Like I think he used a counterfeit bill. Yeah. That is a non- violent offense yeah and even even from like a less antagonistic perspective that i have towards the police we are spreading police officers way too thin by having to respond to everything from a mental health crisis to a violent crime to a missing pet to endless paperwork that they have to do like that's not helpful to anyone like the police department themselves would benefit from having their school safety budget defunded Because it would be one less task that doesn't suit their training that they need to be worried about. A hundred percent. I think that's a really important distinction is that the institution itself is what is inherently flawed and Mm -hmm. the responsibilities that we are giving to police, the funding that we prioritize for them over other social programs, the training Mm -hmm. that they're receiving, the neighborhoods we're choosing to police versus not. Like Mm -hmm. it's those big structural gears in place that I think are highly problematic and in turn end up not only not serving the communities they're ostensibly meant to protect, but they also aren't, as you're saying, serving the police officers themselves. So it's just the whole institution is rotten. It's not that we're saying like people who choose to be cops are born evil Mm -hmm. and we fucking hate them. It's Mm -hmm. like we're talking we're talking about something bigger and also something we can do a lot more about. Yeah. It's not like, oh, they're individual evil people that can never be fixed. No, 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 no. Mm -hmm. That's not it. Mm -hmm. It's like bigger things, but more malleable things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when I think about having $5 billion allocated a year to the NYPD, that is so much money. And 313 million of those dollars being just for school safety, like, in, okay, so if we're talking about alternatives, like if we use that money to hire counselors that use restorative justice informed frameworks to mm-hmm. de-escalate 
in school conflict Mm -hmm. and support students with interpersonal and mental health struggles, that is so much more of an effective use of that money, especially because we have federal data that shows us that a lack of mental health services, not violence, is a much broader issue in schools. Mm -hmm. And we have evidence to show that counselors provide invaluable social, emotional, and academic support for students. The Center for Court Innovation conducted a three-year restorative justice program in five predominantly Black Brooklyn high schools with some of the highest rates of suspension in New York City. And they found that the reported incidents and suspensions plummeted by having these resources. So by like building trusting relationships with students, these program leaders were able to dissolve school conflict in supportive and nonviolent ways. Like we don't need it to be an armed officer. That's already <laughs> like just- that's already an antagonistic power dynamic, right? Like <laughs> it's so ludicrous. It's like I I literally feel like if I came to you and I was like, I'm thirsty, and you're like, Well, here's this pillow, I'd be like, Oh, like that- what? I don't know what that <laughs> solves. Like, it's so ludicrous to zoom out and think that there's a mental health crisis. Let's put armed cops in those schools. Like, what are you talking about? Yeah. Also, you and I might have talked about this before, but suspensions just don't make sense. Like, why is the answer taking the kid out of school? Has that ever done anything for anyone? I'm thinking I'm thinking about a Trixie and Katya video where they're talking about this. <laughs> and Trixie was like, why is the punishment for skipping school to keep them out of school? Like, if you don't stop having sex, we're going to fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> like, it makes no sense. Katya, well said. Like, oh my God. No, that's, it just, yeah, I'm like, it's baffling how nonsensical this is at every single touch point you know yeah it's also just really dismissing the problem or deflecting it's so much easier to just be like all right go home than to sit down and like talk about responsibility or accountability or figure out why certain issues are happening that takes more time more energy you have to hire someone to do that like and also like it's just what if you're in a single parent household and your parent works hourly and now you're suspended and you're six like what so your parent now misses days of work I, I, I just feel like it's the silliest punishment I've ever heard of, but whatever. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. And I think long term, it's not serving as a deterrent for any minor school behavior things. You know, kids are going to make mistakes like everybody else. Kids are going to pass a note in class. Kids are going to maybe cheat on an exam that they didn't study for. Kids are going to, even if even if it rises to like a more violent thing, like pushing someone or whatever, like kids are navigating a really complicated hormonal time and developmental time where so much is changing so rapidly and you're being bombarded with information all the time and you're learning how to be a person they're not going to be perfect from the day they're born until they turn 18 like that doesn't happen for anyone so Mm -mm. you can suspend a kid but it doesn't make it any less likely that the next kid isn't going to do something or that that same kid is not going to do something again because the reactiveness and the like punitive approach just doesn't tend to work yeah and that's what's frustrating is that i feel like so much policy is based on white men and their gut instincts (laughs) it's like i don't know that that's what we should be letting govern our decision making at the population level yeah you might think surely if i suspend a kid Mm -hmm. they won't misbehave again okay maybe you think that but the data says otherwise (laughs) they'll be so sad to have to stay at home not study and watch tv (laughs) yeah totally or like I was having a conversation with someone who was like, if I knew that I'd be, this is graphic, but if I knew I'd be beaten up anytime I tried to steal something, I would never steal. And I was like, okay, um, you have food at home. Mm-hmm. You have a working refrigerator. You have heat. You have all this stuff. You don't need to steal. Of course you wouldn't. But like, we can't govern at that gut instinct. This is just like the vibes I'm feeling level like we can't do that we have to look at the reality of how humans actually behave and like you're saying how kids behave (laughs) if we're going to talk about stealing i want to talk about white collar crime okay yeah i want to talk about insider trading and you know like (laughs) that is a a lot more money and you have money at home and you have food at home so it's not based on need if we were to talk about the impact of a crime yeah let's let's talk about that let's talk about wall street okay (laughs) okay so we have the evidence to show that counselors provides emotional and academic support. And according to the American School Counselor Association, low-income students of color particularly benefit from an increased access and contact with guidance counselors. 
For example, quote, black students are more likely than their white peers to identify their school counselor as a person who had the most influence on their thinking about post-secondary education. Wow. So counselors are not just key specialists in like navigating emotional well-being or, or like academic success, but like they're a significant tool in addressing racial and socioeconomic gaps in students' outcomes. Right. And in terms of implementation for these kinds of roles, I think it's really important that we consider what ratio of students per guidance counselors and other experts would be the most effective. Mm. And this same association, the American School Counselor Association, recommends 250 students per guidance counselor. I think it could be lower than that, but for sure. (laughs) And that the counselors spend at minimum 80% of their time in direct relation with students, not doing some other admin thing, you know, because that would be like, okay, we hire the guidance counselor, and then they're barely speaking with the students. And then we're told, well, guidance counselors don't work. Right. Like, we need to make sure that they're actually spending most of their time with students. Yeah. And their research shows links between utilizing this ratio model in high poverty schools to, quote, better academic outcomes for students, such as improved attendance, fewer disciplinary incidents, and higher graduation rates. Wow. So, it, like, it works, baby. <laughs> and it's just, like, that in conjunction with the fact that there's no research showing that SROs work. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, this feels pretty obvious, guys. Like, what, what's the, what's the holdup? And yeah, <laughs> we also want to keep equity in mind and make sure that historically underfunded neighborhoods and schools get more services to close those resource gaps. Yeah. For instance, during the 2021-2022 school year in New York City, 53.6% of public school students were economically disadvantaged. It's mm-hmm. a lot of kids. And according to UCLA, New York has the most segregated school system for black students and second after California for Latinx students. Wow. And across the U.S., school counselors who work with predominantly students of color have to serve 34 more students every year than counselors who work with predominantly white students. Mm. So they're getting less of the benefit of one-on-one time since the resources are spread to more students. Dinner. Mm-hmm. And I would also guess that that would make it less likely for a student to want to reach out to a counselor if they're always busy or they never get enough time to really create a trusting relationship. So you're already you're seeing less students and you're probably connecting with them less or, or creating less of a trust in that being a, a supportive resource for you. The money could also provide more funds to further invest in educators yeah. <laughs> and school leaders who should be at the helm of maintaining order in schools like We should be placing the responsibility of school rule compliance and disciplinary actions in the hands of educators. Like police should not serve as a disciplinarians for student behavior that does not directly impact public safety. Like that's ridiculous. Like using, imagine the the fear of having a police officer yell at you for not having like a hall pass when you go to the bathroom. Like (laughs) no, I like cry when someone in my building yells at me for leaving my laundry in the dryer for too long. Like I can't. I can't handle that. I couldn't handle that. And I certainly couldn't have as a kid, you know? The white woman tears. Yeah, literally. (laughs) Guys, prioritize my feelings first. (laughs) No, it's true. Like, that's so scary. Like, it's so disproportionate to what's going on. It's so disproportionate. And I think we talked about this in season one with the voluntourism industry and how Mm -hmm. in so many cases, the problem that a community has and is hoping to solve and probably knows how to solve and is just reaching out for funding or whatever the case may be, Yeah, is often education. And instead, we're mm. like, let's give you orphanages. <laughs> That's what this feels like. It's like, you want more teachers? teachers? Here's a cop. <laughs> like that, right. It's like, no, that, that literally isn't the problem. Like, we genuinely just need more teachers and better student-to-teacher ratios. And that's about it. Like, that, that... As a starting point, obviously, yes, also counselors, also this, also that. But that as a starting point is like, if we literally don't even change the finite number of dollars we're pouring into public schools, if we aren't even being sophisticated enough Mm -hmm. yet to count for equity, and all we're doing is just reallocating the existing money going to schools every year, we could still make such a massive difference by just Mm -hmm. getting more teachers. Mm -hmm. It just, it's wild that it feels like people are so resistant to... Um, really good intuitive ideas yeah because it's i feel like in a in a public school that doesn't have enough funding to have enough teachers let's say you have one teacher with a class of 50 students or something and it gets unruly because it's 50 kids and maybe like more more interpersonal drama is happening more like little bouts of violence between kids is happening 
the reaction being, oh, these kids are inherently more dangerous. So let's put cops in here instead of let's hire more educators, de-escalate, have smaller classes. Obviously, a teacher is going to be overwhelmed trying to handle that amount of, of course. that level of children and, and chaos. But a, a cop coming in every time like a kid starts yelling at another kid or, or I, I just don't see how why that is the first option. I know, especially if you're thinking about a teacher with 50 students and some of them have disabilities and some of them are neurodivergent and some of them are maybe acting out because I don't know, they're hungry or any number of reasons that Mm -hmm. have nothing to do with any of these kids being inherently violent. It's just like Mm -hmm. certain needs aren't being met. Mm -hmm. Why are we punishing them for needs not being met? That's what I always think about. And we talk Mm -hmm. about that a lot is like, we have put you in this position and now we're going to punish you for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. That's very well put. And I think also given the fact that that monitoring student conduct can be done by school faculty, police intervention is like a duplicative use of resources which is an inefficient use of taxpayer dollars so when this comes up on the right like i was reading some fox news articles about like republicans getting really upset about school resource officers in like certain cities or whatever being removed and they're like this is insane like the crime is gonna go up or whatever i'm like don't you prefer taxpayer dollars not being wasted like if if one person could do this job why do you want two people doing it Mm. (laughs) no they are not like true conservatives by philosophy (laughs) you know what i mean like they're not actually into like a conservative use of money spent Mm -hmm. unless it serves them like Mm -hmm. i feel like it's similar with like book banning at public schools of Mm -hmm. banning books about growing up as a queer kid and they're like all about freedom of of speech (laughs) until you know what i mean it's like until i just feel like i'm just picturing white republican congressmen like covering their ears and being like yeah they're like wait i don't want to know that gay people exist so now suddenly i don't support freedom of speech question mark like Mm -hmm. they're not philosophically consistent and Mm -hmm. it would be nice to think they don't want their taxpayer money wasted but here they are funding sros or freaking out when they're not funded Mm -hmm. and yeah i've heard black abolitionists talk about how to reduce violence perpetrated against black people at the hands of the police some of the solutions were just more funding to the police Mm -hmm. by way of giving the police body cams and they're like no like we don't (laughs) we don't want body cams we we just gave billions of more dollars to the police yeah what we want is that money not going toward body cams we want that money going to black kids like that's what we've been asking for and any which way we can misinterpret like the abolitionists asks yeah we're misinterpreting it i know you want less violence on like perpetrated against black kids at the hands of the police okay police here's more money like what are we doing yeah it's like all right we'll just film it while we beat you like why (laughs) what in the actual world and then you hear oh the body cam wasn't working there was some glitch the microphone wasn't on oh Mm. um, okay no no (laughs) literally no And so let's talk a bit about physical safety and what we were talking about at the top of the episode about school shootings, guns, stuff like that. So Mm. first off, schools could hire security guards for school entrances because they are not police officers and therefore cannot enforce the law. They can, however, make sure that non-authorized people enter the school grounds or like keeping those within the school safe rather than creating this police versus student dynamic of fear and increasing suspensions and juvenile arrests and all this stuff. And with a primary concern being school shootings, maybe people would be a little wary or raise concerns of like, okay, but if we replace them with security guards, how are we going to control for gun violence? But the data doesn't actually indicate that SROs have prevented any of these tragic events. (gasps) So a study conducted by the FBI and Texas State University, okay? Okay, okay. <laughs> analyzed 25 school shootings and found that not one was, quote, ended by armed officers returning fire. They typically ended when the shooter was restrained by unarmed staff or when the shooter simply decided to stop. Are you joking? <laughs> no. Okay. And I, okay, yes, that is a sample size of 25, but also considering, like, that it's a federal agency the, the FBI is coming to this conclusion and like Texas <laughs> State University is coming well, to this also, conclusion. I mean, how many school shootings do we have to choose from? Like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like there's a there's a finite number of them. Yeah. That we can actually study. Thank God. I mean, it's still way too high. Obviously, it's exorbitant. But yeah, it's not like we can study 3000 school shootings. Yeah. And and I think also a lot of times what happens with a school shooting is like the shooting starts 
and then the school goes into lockdown and then the police that enter the the school have to be like very delicate about trying to identify the shooter so that they a don't hurt more kids or rile up the person or what like it's a very delicate entrance into the school and like trying to figure out where they are and all that stuff so the fact that it usually ends with a teacher having to risk their life and jumping and trying to disarm this person or the shooter killing themselves or walking out of the school and being like okay i'm done with it whatever it is like it's not being stopped by the police officers so even when we're talking about the most horrifying things that can happen to these kids on school grounds the amount of money that we're putting into this resource and it's not even stopping the most dangerous thing that can happen like let's we we need to regroup yeah i when i was an undergrad i was a new student orientation advisor and one of my new students when i was a senior and they were a first year was this kid named zach and he lost his cousin in the sandy hook shooting because she was a teacher and she had jumped in front of her second grade classroom Uh. to save their lives and I don't believe that there were SROs at Sandy Hook. I don't know how many SROs were present in the study cited by the FBI and Texas State University. Were they only looking at schools where shootings happened and SROs were there? Yeah. Okay. So I don't I don't know that there were SROs at Sandy Hook. But to your point, like, I hear so often about these unarmed teachers being mm-hmm. the people who are that front line. Yeah. And, and I don't want to hear that then we should arm the teachers. That's not no, the No, I don't want to hear that. <laughs> I that's because this is my question. If no one had access to guns, <laughs> would anyone need guns for protection? That's my question. Yeah, it's like, oh, I don't want just the bad guys to have guns. Well, okay, why don't we <laughs> get rid of them? But <laughs> right. and and just because I I ultimately think that if you are in a situation of high stress, bite or flight, adrenaline, danger of any sort, you are going to use the tools at your disposal. Right. And so if those tools are just your hands, you're going to use that. Right. If you have a knife, you might use that. If you have a gun, you're going to use that. So the likelihood of two random people who are not like trained in any sort of martial arts, like having an (laughs) altercation on the street and like someone dying versus if both of those people are armed and they're like, oh, you want to say that again? And you pull out a gun. People are we're unreliable and like unpredictable and impulsive everybody has different triggers exactly so like let's take away the like weapons of war from (laughs) just the average folk right and like we said at the top of the episode too the biggest crisis in schools is not violence but a failure to invest in mental health and students are reporting record-breaking levels of anxiety depression trauma And the crisis is so severe that according to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the suicide rate has increased by 70% between 2006 and 2016 for children between the ages of 10 to 17. Oh my God. Which is staggering. And around 72% of U.S. children will experience at least one major stressful life event, such as losing a loved one, experiencing abuse, etc., before the age of 18. These figures have not been reduced by police presence, and especially when school counselors and nurses are quite often the first to interact with children who are sick or injured or traumatized. Mm -hmm. So clearly there's a huge mental health issue and not funding that and not taking that seriously and not looking at that and thinking 70% increase in suicide between 10 and 17. That is so sad Mm -hmm. and crushing and preventable right especially for kids so young it's just like to think about them experiencing such stressful and traumatic events and to then show up to school without the aid of counselors or without teachers who know them as well as they could if the student to teacher ratio is different yeah to think about trying to go through that trauma without proper funding and instead being penalized I mean, it sounds just also interconnected, but obviously, yeah, so crushing. Yeah. And I'm not saying like, oh, the SROs are creating the increase in suicide rates or like there's so many different things that are contributing to that. But if kids that are going to school are spending the majority of their time interacting with teachers and any faculty at school, that's like eight hours of your day, almost every day of the year that you could be making such an impact Mm -hmm. on those kids so making sure that where they're spending the majority of their waking hours and active mental hours making sure that that can be the most supportive and resourceful and caring experience Mm -hmm. should be a huge priority absolutely yeah it should be like challenging in some ways of course but warm and joyous and like you said supportive Mm -hmm. 
And while we're made to believe overall that police officers exist to ensure our safety, police rarely prevent crime. Rather, they respond to crimes that have already taken place. Mm -hmm. And they do not demonstrate a particularly promising track record of solving or preventing violent crimes. (laughs) According to the Brookings Institution, quote, 38% of murders, 66% of rapes, 70% of robberies, and 47% of aggravated assaults go uncleared. And a study using 60 years of data, 60 years, (laughs) found that increasing funding for police did not have a significant impact on reducing crime. That's as longitudinal as it gets, guys. (laughs) Yeah. What I really want to say about that is that I think that that is a lot of what people who are against defunding the police get wrong is like, I want crime to go down too. I don't want to be scared or hurt or robbed. I don't want some dystopian land of the purge going on. Like, this is the future liberals want crap. Like, we have the same goal. It's just police are statistically not getting us there. So, like, let's pivot accordingly. Right. And, like, let's say you are from Massachusetts. One of the nicest towns or suburbs in Massachusetts is called Weston. By nicest, I I mean, like, wealthy as hell. Mm -hmm. And... When you walk down the streets of Weston, do you feel mm-hmm. safe? Mm-hmm. All these white suburban parents are like, yeah, of course I do. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, have you ever mm-hmm. seen a police officer mm-hmm. on the streets of Weston? They're like, no, I don't think I have. And I'm like, right. You feel safe there because it's a resource community where people have their needs met. Yeah. And thus are engaging less in violent confrontation that comes as a result of not having enough food, not having enough health care, not having your disability accommodated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Rich, rich white people already live in a police abolitionist state. Exactly. <laughs> so I'm like, you don't feel safe because there are police standing at every corner intimidating everybody. You feel safe because people have their needs met and the rest sort of ensues from there. It's also like the level of gentrification and redlining and all like where the the crime and the fear and all the arrests are happening is not even in your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. So it's like, oh, I want those people being policed. It's like those people aren't anywhere near you. And like, that's a whole other problem in and of itself. But like hearing like, oh, crime is going up. I'm like, in your on your block? I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> Do you even know what crime is? Like, relax. <laughs> oh, my God. So we have also seen that schools that invest in mental health services see improvements in academic achievement better attendance rates, higher graduation rates, lower rates of disciplinary action, including suspensions and expulsions, and overall improvements in school safety. So it's just, again, it's not about wanting just this free-for-all land. It's about wanting a safe land. I want a safe space physically and mentally. Police are just not doing that for us. And we can create a different world that actually gets us there. And just because we want to get rid of police doesn't mean we want to increase danger. You know? I mean, yeah, quite the opposite. And it even if people can't fully get on board, I think the data is strong enough to suggest we could at least try it out for a little. Mm-hmm. It's at least worth trying. Yeah. Given what the success rate has been for better funding counselors and mental health programs, mm-hmm. we should at least try that before we continue on with this thing that is not working. Yeah. And that's perfect transition into my last little bit of just thinking about evaluating the success of any of these potential changes i think it's really important that we don't limit our evaluation when we're talking about a paradigm shift Mm -hmm. and given the diversity and population of this country like we will need time to transition and assimilate and we need to take on long-term views of possibilities rather than cutting programs and attempts at betterment short because it doesn't work next week right you know and it's going to take time to phase out student resource officers and hire thousands of encouraging guidance counselors and it's going to take time for those guidance counselors like to ensure that those counselors are equipped with culturally competent approaches to Mm -hmm. attend to the needs of a diverse student population and it's definitely going to take time to rebuild the trust between youth who have been antagonized and targeted and figures Mm -hmm. of authority so I think it's really important to remember that and that The evaluation also needs to be conducted by youth advocacy groups and education researchers and student-centered methods that allow for student participation. Like, I and And that's like, I mean, I'm basically plagiarizing an abolitionist I heard interviewed on the Call Your Girlfriend podcast a few years ago right now. So I'll try and find that and link to that in the show notes. But one of the main counter arguments that this abolitionist talked about other people as having against Mm -hmm. our abolitionist movement is like, 
Okay, so what if all the police just don't show up tomorrow to work in New York City, let's say? Mm-hmm. Then what's going to happen? Everything's going to go rogue. Everything's going to get, everyone's going to get robbed. Everyone's going to get murdered, like all this stuff. And she said it in very similar terms to what you're saying now, which is like, we're not talking about excising this death-making institution in one fell swoop Mm -hmm. and keeping all other variables constant. Mm -hmm. That's what people picture, but that's not Mm -hmm. what we're saying. Mm -hmm. We don't want to keep other variables constant. We're not Mm -hmm. saying let's just get rid of the police at the same time as we continue not to fund mental health programs as the same, at the same time as we continue not to place counselors in schools. Mm -hmm. What we're saying is like you just said, a paradigm shift where Mm -hmm. we change what we fund, we change what we resource Mm -hmm. and we change how we do that. And so it's just a really shallow and uninterested counter argument to act as if we just want to get rid of all police and that's it no that's literally not what we're saying yeah it takes so much time for policy rollout to happen Mm -hmm. it's just not going to happen overnight and no one i don't think people who are taking this really seriously consider that as like what's going to happen like something's going to be signed into law and then tomorrow all the cops are like all right well here's my badge like going home (laughs) that's not the case and i wouldn't want that to be the case I don't want it to be super incremental change that takes 25 years, but kind of like turning down the volume of one thing at the same time as we turn up the volume of of another, Right, you know, just like a a, a transition that makes sense that allows time for the success to be for success to be possible. Because I think what, what can be a difficult conversation with policy changes is that often we only address one part of the puzzle Mm -hmm. and then we get upset that like the puzzle pieces don't match the puzzle anymore. And like, right. right. If we remove SROs from schools without considering that children are experiencing violence and abuse at home or in their neighborhoods or maybe food insecure or have unresolved trauma or access to deadly weapons, like obviously it's just not going to happen overnight. And like when a progressive policy is instated and we kind of and it's very narrow and then in the months following it doesn't immediately go go to plan because all of these external factors are not being addressed and in general social change needs time to be accepted Mm -hmm. the policy will like not only be reversed but doubled down on harder than before because it's like see that this didn't work and it's so scary and we need to roll it all back and like my worry always with advocacy efforts is like ensuring that we put just as much work into protecting a win as getting the win yes because we're always more at risk like the opposition will always come down harder following a progressive success that's that's like i feel like where advocacy has to be as strong as possible no that's such a good point i mean we were all resting on our laurels in the wake of roe v wade and that is exactly when the right mobilized and Mm -hmm. was able to time and time and time again slowly chip away at that protection right like Mm -hmm. then planned parenthood v casey came along Mm-hmm. And so now, oh, now now it's a shorter amount of weeks into your pregnancy mm-hmm. after which you're allowed to get an abortion. Okay, mm-hmm. now we, with abortion clinics, make these weird rulings that they, oh, they all have to abide by hospital-level regulations. Mm-hmm. When the reality of that is just, okay, now these abortion clinics don't have eight-foot-wide hallways that allow two stretchers in opposite directions to pass each other. So they're all going to be shut down because they don't have enough funding to completely renovate. Like... <laughs> They slowly start chipping away in these seemingly innocuous parts of mm-hmm. abortion provision. And eventually Dobbs v. Jackson comes out. So mm-hmm. I think your point is well taken of as as the left in general, we need to be much better at protecting the winds as well. Exactly. So I would say that my main takeaway in researching this was, OK, what we know now is that police presence in school increases juvenile arrests, contributes to the school-to-prison pipeline, decreases student trust and authority, lowers achievement outcomes, disproportionately affects youth of color, LGBTQ plus students, and students with disabilities. So, like, what are we willing to do about it? And how can we bridge the antagonism between political parties to just consider that how things work now isn't the only option and how can we move towards a better system with the least amount of damage possible and trying in our advocacy trying to predict sticky spots that might come up so that we can approach any transition with a harm reduction lens mm-hmm. i think that's a perfect takeaway that's that's, that's what i learned <laughs> i mean my brain is just soup at this point <laughs> Because I know this was definitely a, a like quote and statistic heavy episode. So I hope that the narrative was clear of like what I was trying to present and what well, absolutely. seems to be going on. And I think you did a really good job presenting what 
SROs are intended for and when they came about, what their actual effect is, the harms they're not preventing, and easy, or not easy, but intuitive alternatives that are at least worth trying given the research supporting those. You would think. (laughs) Right. Because you did such a good job presenting that, I'm like, why didn't this happen yesterday? Like, why, (laughs) why are we still talking about it? You know what I mean? Like, that's where the soupy brain is coming in. Like, it feels so obvious and it's so hard knowing how politically divided we all are and how much worse that divisiveness is getting it's just like we should all want to bridge that gap because all of us want to prioritize the health and safety of our kids and Mm -hmm. i don't know maybe i feel a little bit as a loss as to how to better bridge that gap i know it's just frustrating when two different schools of thought or political ideologies can disagree about the same set of data. Mm -hmm. If you say this is what's happening in schools and someone says, I don't believe you, then like the conversation has ended. Like we can't, we're at at an impasse. Right, because in my mind, I always thought politics was disagreeing on how to solve the problem. Mm -hmm. And lately more and more, it feels like disagreeing on what the problem even is. Yeah. And it's, we're not, we're not sharing the same reality. That's why I think it's it's helpful to think about what are the goals and values and priorities of my opposition? If it's safety, if it's tough on crime, if it's lower taxes, I can spin this argument as I hope I've showcased in a couple different points of like, we can use our taxpayer money better. We can reduce violence. We can be more effective at identifying what crime is and where it is and what mm-hmm. what is causing it if we have the appropriate roles looking at what's going on you know like if if we're identifying someone having a mental health crisis as a crime then then we're we're, <laughs> se- we're we're sending people in the wrong direction so i think thinking about okay what what do you want out of a school and what do i want out of a school and like where are the points where we can agree and then finding a solution like this that can achieve all of our goals and being very clear like we have been about we're not asking for some nightmarish dystopia we're asking for a comprehensive look at the data how does our society work right now and what are things we want to change and how can we use data informed and advocacy informed methods to achieve that yeah because it feels like we have definitely identified the solution but it's getting the buy-in for Mm -hmm. that solution in order to have the funding for that solution Mm -hmm. where we're stuck societally. Mm -hmm. And it's hard because in so many ways, I was really optimistic at at the creation of the mainstream Black Lives Matter movement because Mm -hmm. it felt like it was so incisively calling out a really important issue where, okay, white women get a lot more airtime when they're harassed or murdered or kidnapped or whatever the case is by their white partners than their black counterparts do in Mm. mainstream media Mm -hmm. and we don't talk about or legislate or act like black lives matter as much as white lives and that's showing up in our media and so i thought wow black lives matter what an incisively named (laughs) movement and then the right runs away with it. They're like, all lives matter. Well, right. That is that is the point. <laughs> but we're not currently treating all lives as if they matter equally. That is literally the point yeah. of the Black Lives Matter movement. And so I'm just curious, like, seeing how that spun out of control in the minds and the imaginations of the far right. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, like, almost just from a messaging perspective, how to incisively name a movement or position these programs that we want people to get on board with regardless of political background Mm -hmm. and i don't want to trojan horse it and act like it's not about race but it you know what i mean i'm like is that the answer like what what do we say because i I don't know i don't know that's such a funny image like do we say like all kids matter and like secretly we're like this is a reparations baby yeah it's like that show that sasha baron cohen did where he like went across the united states and was talking to different people like in disguise and like kind of right. getting them to say really what they think because it was like right. I'm pre- I'm presenting as if I agree with like the worst possible thing you could believe in right <laughs> and then if I if I start with like oh I think that this race thing is getting totally out of control but you know what I heard these counselors <laughs> right, right. <laughs> they're they're really helping our students oh really oh okay <laughs> right that's what I'm wondering like is it time to start Trojan horsing like roll up the sleeves 
and be just as sus as the right has been. <laughs> you know, like they they packaged that abortion clinic regulation bill as if it was for the safety of all, knowing what it would actually achieve was the closure of abortion clinics. Like, yeah. they've been doing this scrappy shit for decades. Like, I don't know. I don't time know what to, the answer time is. Time to hustle. <laughs> time to hustle. I mean, yeah, it just feels similar to in our first season, we had an episode on men's rights. Mm-hmm. And I remember you saying rhetorically in response to these like hypothetical men's rights activists that we were talking about, like, we want the same thing. Like, Come on, let's fight the patriarchy together. Like, mm-hmm. you talk about the assault rates of young boys and you talk about not being able to not being able to be seen as valuable unless you're a provider. Like, l- let's get rid of those stringently imposed gender roles. Mm-hmm. Like, let's fight it together. Yeah. And, and that's what this feels like. It's like, wait a second. You want the safety of kids? I want the safety of kids. Yeah. We want the same thing. And like, yeah. it's still just, we're still butting up against each other. The power of language, man, and of labels, uh-huh. because... It's hard to to speak without labels mm-hmm. because it's a helpful like way of concise of, of being concise and speaking labeling what we're talking about. But when we disagree on definitions, then I feel like if you even say the word patriarchy, the men's right group is done listening. <laughs> so I feel like a lot of our buzzwords, they're not really buzzwords. They're words that are labeling something, but the words that are identified as belonging to a progressive camp maybe we need to approach situations without leading with those words or trying to find other words that sound less threatening and I struggle with that too because I'm like well I don't need to accommodate your tiny little feelings because you don't understand the definition of feminism or whatever but if it's never gonna I don't know I'm getting less and less interested in like trying to change someone's mind as much as just change the impact like get this signed into law right because when All of our counties are being gerrymandered. You know, those tiny little feelings, unfortunately, become not so tiny. Mm -hmm. And success ultimately to me looks like less kids getting fucking arrested in their hallways. So how do we do that as fast as possible? I'm not I'm I'm really not trying to sound like patronizing of like everyone on the right or whatever. And we need to trick them into believing us or whatever. But like I also react negatively and shut down in a lot of ways with buzzwords on the right. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone says pro-life to me. There is part of me that just gets defensive and I'm like, I can't even argue with this. So right, I right. think on both sides, there's like a difference between disagreeing on someone's fundamental right to exist as a person worthy of respect yeah. and like equal rights in front of the law. Like if you just think that women shouldn't exist, I can't talk to you about that. But like if we are just using words that threaten us or indicate certain things to us and signal things to us that we're like, no, I'm not, I don't want to see eye to eye with that person. If we just bring it a little bit down to basics of like, okay, what do we care about? Yeah. Safety in schools good academic outcomes like we we want the united states to be on the world stage of academic excellence and it's just not and we spend so much money on on academics wouldn't it be better if all that money that we're spending on public schools was actually getting us in a return on investment Ooh, well said Mm. (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) no i think there is something to it i mean i wish a seasoned community organizer could parachute into this conversation and quickly like share their thoughts and ideas as well yeah but (sighs) i totally agree and if you really think about it having police officers arresting kids at their schools like that is a really ultimately ridiculous thing to think about yeah it's just unnecessary Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. uh so yeah that's the episode any other final thoughts or have we kind of beat this trojan horse to death (laughs) Culture Colander is produced by Elisa Nolasco and Audra Fitzgerald. Show art by Angela Cho and music by Santiago Hervella. Research for each episode is conducted independently and is for entertainment purposes only. Information shared in the show reflects the best we know at this moment in time, and there is always more to learn.